When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of Knife Talk is sponsored by Tormac. For your chance to win a T4 sharpening system, visit knifetalk.net to enter the draw. The winner will be chosen on our 10th show and will receive a Tormac T4 and a set of jigs to make your knives razor sharp. Welcome to Knife Talk. Today I'll be speaking with the extremely talented Aaron Goff from Goff Custom Knives. So how are you today, Aaron? Oh, very good, Greg. Thanks for having me, mate. Not a problem at all. So, so let's jump straight in. Why knives? Why spend your days getting cuts and covered in dust? Uh, you know, it's an interesting question. And um, knives fascinate me because ultimately they're one of mankind's most basic tools. Um, and, you know, they've always been at the, the forefront of materials technology. When you, when you think back through to like the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, that kind of stuff, um, you know, one of the characteristics, one of the things that defined those ages was... Uh, edged tools and edged weapons. Um, and that's still going on, you know, like we're still kind of pushing, there aren't too many other industries that use like powder metallurgy steels and that kind of stuff. Um, but knife makers do. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's very interesting to have that dichotomy between being like one of mankind's most basic tools and also something that's always been at the forefront of materials technology and continues to be, and it really fascinates me. Yeah. And it's, Again, speaking to many sort of knife makers, it, it, it's a very strange fascination to have, isn't it? Something that, you know, it, it's, there to, it's there maybe to help you, to feed you, maybe to help to help hunt. Um, it's a very primal thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for me, like on a personal level, it was, you know, I grew up kind of in the country in uh, rural Melbourne in Australia. And uh, I pretty much went everywhere from uh, a young age with a, a pocket knife, you know. Um, and I was always, I don't know, carving sticks for no particular reason. Um, and so my, my love of knives kind of came out of that. It was just always having them around, considering them to be tools and, and uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so how long have you been making knives? Uh, on and off since I was 12 years old. Really? Really? Yeah. My first knives were not really what you would call knives. They were basically shivs. <laughs> uh, and I, I would... Uh, go to like garage sales and antique stores with my dad and uh, buy like butter knives or antique carving knives. And then uh, my parents, for some reason, had thought it was a good idea to let a 12-year-old buy a bench grinder with his pocket money. <laughs> so I, Great I parents. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I would sit outside on this, on this picnic table that we had with this bench grinder plugged into an extension lead. I don't think I had safety glasses. Uh, <laughs> and I would uh, grind these you know, these uh, beautiful antique knives down into pointy little shivs that I would then make leather sheaths for and stuff. Um, 
it's a bit of a strange way to have started, but luckily I still have all my fingers and so on. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, it seems these days there are tutorials, videos, and sort of endless resources to learn. So, so how did you learn? Um, so initially by trial and error uh, when I was very young. And then when I was about 14 years old, I uh, actually did what I would term an apprenticeship with uh, a quite well-known Australian knife maker named Neil Charity. Um, and he was pretty famous for, um, making these beautiful folders that had, um, like very fancy inlays and hidden pins and all sorts of stuff. Um, and he was very, very good at what he did. Um, I will say though, that unfortunately being a 14 year old, uh, learning from, you know, this, this gruff, uh, Aussie knife maker, I didn't really have the patience to pick up as much as I could have from him. Um, so it only lasted about a year, and I kind of stalled petered out after that. But it was uh, an amazing experience, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. Yes, yeah, yeah. But I mean, you've sh- you've really shared your journey as well, from you know making knives from nothing more than a file and a saw to your current setup of ultra precision machinery. So you do a lot less of your YouTube videos now. Is is this purely down to time, not having enough hours in the day? It is, yeah, and it's actually something that I'm working to uh, to fix. I want to get back to my roots a bit more um, by the end of the year in terms of doing a lot more YouTube videos, um, and that is actually probably going to come at the expense of doing production. Yes, I'm yeah. going to change where, where my focus is. Um, you know, and there's a couple of reasons for that, but I, I really miss interacting with people in, on that, in that way, you know, like on forums and that kind of stuff. I haven't had much chance to do that. Um, and I want to get back to that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, I have to say, that the video of your CNC setup where your knives are profiled and drilled and, and so on, is, is, it's a thing of beauty. It's utterly <laughs> hypnotic. It's, uh, <laughs> I love that video. Thanks, mate. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, that getting that setup has been a dream of mine for a really long time. So I, I have a very strange work history. You know, I've been a software developer for a long time, much like yourself. Right. Um, I worked in the, the warehouse for Gibson Australia, like for the guitar company. Oh, cool. Very cool. Um, and I also worked in briefly, briefly in a factory in a, a company called Cole Clark in Australia, and they, but they made guitars from right. scratch and they had this, uh, CNC router. It was a, I think it was a five or six axis CNC router. And this thing was like, 15 feet wide and like 40 foot across. And it was like, you know, $2 million worth of CNC router. And ever since I saw that thing, I've had a fascination with CNC that just wouldn't go away, you know? Yeah. Uh, and when I had the opportunity to, um, to get my CNC mill, I, I jumped on it. I'd actually never, I'd never seen a, a CNC mill, uh, in person before I flew to Ottawa and bought that machine. <laughs> uh, so it was a bit of a, a leap of faith that I'd be able to get it all running and fix it up and stuff. But, you know, the the reason being that um, that machine lets me make knives uh, to the level of quality that I want to and the level of repeatability that I want to. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like I, I can make knives by hand. I'm very comfortable doing that. But you're never going to achieve the same level of like repeatability and precision. So it's a very interesting and very it's a very different way of making knives. I don't think there are too many people that are, are making knives that way, but um, it's been a very fun process going, you know, going through and learning all that. Yeah. And, and how did you learn the, the machining processes that you use? Is it just been trial and error or is, is there, is there another level of 
YouTube community out there, which I didn't know existed. But how did that happen? Uh, yeah, not not so much YouTube. I've got a grin on my face because it's it's one of those things. Everybody asks this, and I don't really have a good answer for it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, mainly like trial and error. Um, and there's also, isn't so, you know, we're pretty familiar with like Blade forums. Um, yeah. There's another amazing forum called Practical Machinist. Um, and the guys on there are all like, you know, old hand CNC machinists, like experts that are willing to, to share their time for free, basically. Um, and they're a great bunch and they helped me out a, a lot, both with rebuilding that machine and with um, getting it up and running and, and so on. Mm. Um, and then it, it's basically just been, uh, you know, trial and error, designing stuff, seeing if it works, starting again endlessly. <laughs> um, there, there really is no substitute for that. Unfortunately, once you get down to the point of, uh, you know, designing fixtures and so on for a particular item. So like the resolute, then no one can really tell you how to do it. Um, you have to work it out for yourself. So. Yes, yeah. And I mean, talking about your Resolute, so many knife makers have a, a range of knives which they make and then sell. Uh, but, mm-hmm. ra- but rather than have a range, you've, you've doubled down, haven't you? You've refined your one design into the into the perfect outdoor utility knife, which is the Resolute Mac 3. So is that in a constant state of refinement? It is, yeah. And I mean, the I call the Resolute the current version, the Mark III, but there's actually been several changes that have been rolled into the Mark III uh, as I've gone along, like the, the move from Cerakote to TLC, for instance, is a big one. Yeah. Um, and when I started making the, the Mark III, all of the sheaths were completely made by hand. And now I've managed to get the repeatability of the handles and the blades good enough that I can actually see and see the sheaths as well, so that now the sheaths and knives are fully interchangeable. Um, which is amazing because that means if a customer loses a sheath, I can send them a new sheath without having to bring their knife back and make a, a Kydex sheath just for that yes, one. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was something that I've been aiming to try and do for a while. Um, and yeah, like, I, you know, my, my reasoning for doing just one thing is that I don't really want to be subject to fashion and trends. You know, I think this is something that kind of pervades knife culture, just like it does the rest of human culture, to be honest. Um you know, things change yearly, at least in appearance, even if there's no real spec change, you know, like cars are a really good example of this. There's always the 2016 model, 2017 model. (laughs) And oftentimes they're largely the same. They are just putting a new gloss on it. Um, so there's no Damascus resolute in the making there. (laughs) No, no, I I have been working on the Mark four for about a year now. Um, and it's mainly been, trying to source the materials that I want, um, which has proved to be more interesting than you would think. Um, but yeah, like, you know, it's largely, I want to keep doing the same models. Um, and I want to at some point do a folder and a kitchen knife. Um, but I'm not sure exactly when that's going to happen. Honestly, it's, I, th- I thought that was going to happen two years ago and I just haven't had time to do them. <laughs> so do you take on any custom work or, or your days just filled with the, the orders for the resolute knife? I do 100% just the Resolute Mark III right now. Um, right. Yeah, and it's it, you know it's been a really interesting challenge just doing that because just doing one thing really highlights the areas that you're bad at, um, you know, and the things that you need to improve and that kind of stuff. So it's been an awesome journey in in that way that I've managed to um, you know get that process for making the Resolute really really dialed in and still still working on that obviously. Yeah, I mean, I, I have some I have some plans in regards to doing custom work. Um, 
And I, I think one thing that I want to do is I want to, as I said, get back to my roots a little bit. I want to do some YouTube videos of doing kind of one-off knives and then, uh, not hundred percent sure about this yet, but my idea initially was to auction them for charity. So basically make one knife, do a YouTube video of it, start to finish, and then auction it for something like uh, the Wounded Warrior Project or something like that. Oh, very nice. Very nice idea. Yeah, and I think that would be really fun. Uh, so I definitely want to do that. I have, I have a bunch of um, knives that I, you know, I'm not terribly interested in making it on a, on a production basis, but I would love to make one-offs. Um, you know, some, some fighting knives and some, some very interesting stuff along those lines, you know? Yes, yeah. Well, you've certainly got the shop for it. I mean, my, my knives are made in a, in a dusty old workshop where, in comparison, yours are they're seemingly made in a high-end German engineering workshop. It's as clean as a hospital wing from what I can see. Uh, yeah, it's interesting how everybody always uh, gets, like, there's always something that people point out. Um, yeah, you know, like, I, I won't, I won't uh, pretend like I'm not just a little bit OCD. Um, <laughs> I definitely uh, habitually clean that workshop. Yeah. But, um, yeah, for me, it's it's more about uh, I think that the way you organize your space reflects uh, what ends up being in your mind. Yeah. And I think if, if the space was very, um, you know, disorganized, then I wouldn't be organized internally. And I need to be organized internally to keep on top of everything. And so, is, it, is it just yourself in the shop as well? It is, yeah. I, I've had um, I've had some friends in at various points to help me out with, um, you know, making boxes and that kind of stuff, um, like doing packaging and that kind of stuff. But mm. in terms of actually making the knives, it's pretty much been me. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, you've you've got that shop tour video, which I think you've done a couple now. But in one, yeah. <laughs> in one, you say, "I'm now in my dirty room for grinding and, sa- and sandblasting." But even that <laughs> has pristine white walls. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I guess the relative concept. Yeah, but I'm I'm fascinated for some reason with with shop layouts and shop walkthrough videos. And has your has your shop changed much over the years? Yeah, a lot. Um, I don't know if you ever saw any of my like original videos, like where I'm doing the O1 heat treating and that kind of stuff, where I was actually in a shared workshop um, in like the basement of this commercial building. Right. And that was very different. Like at that point, I was using I didn't even have my own belt grinder initially. I was using like a woodworking belt grinder to like profile my knives and stuff, uh, which I actually set on fire one time accidentally. <laughs> um, full of sawdust, you know. Um, and yeah, but like the move to CNC was the the biggest thing that changed my shop because all of a sudden when you move to CNC, there's a lot of other tools that you don't really need. Like you don't really have a use for a drill press when you've got a CNC mill. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, stuff like that. So it's definitely changed a lot over, over time um, and will continue to, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, with that, with that huge machine you've got, I mean, you do so many processes with that one machine and I've seen videos where you're, you're cutting and milling and, you know, even off the machine then, you've, you've got your, your sub-zero treatments and you use the tumbler to knock off any edges, sandblasting, yep. coating, baking. And, I mean, that's a lot of processes. And yes. most, most people wouldn't really know what goes into manufacturing a quality knife. You know, we've got, right. the, we've got the availability of cheap, almost disposable knives in any store now. So it can, it can be difficult for a knife maker to justify the cost of their work. You know, sometimes it can take days of work or sometimes weeks just to make that one knife. Yep. So, so how do you justify um, the, the prices of your knives? Is, it, is that purely on reputation? 
I actually have pinned the the price of my knives right from the start uh, to probably lower than I should. Uh, I, I, if I actually work out my finances after tax and stuff, I don't make a whole lot on each one. Um, and the reason for that was that I wanted the knives to be priced such that people would actually use them. Um, you know, I understand that they're still an expensive knife, but I want people to be able to use them as opposed to it being, you know, a 600 US dollar collector knife that uh, people put in their safe and never touch. I've got you. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And I've been very fortunate in that the vast majority of my customers actually do use their knives. You know, I get sent photos where they're out on hunting trips and, uh, you know, skinning boar and that kind of stuff. Um, and that's awesome. For me, that's the, the primary use of a knife. If it's not getting used, then it's not a knife. So, um, that's the the real reason behind my pricing is actually I don't want it to go higher than it is because I feel like people won't use them as much. Yes, yeah, yeah, but yeah, but there's a hell of a lot of process involved in making that. You know, I I, I read recently that um somebody somebody wrote that if bees were paid the minimum wage, each jar would cost one hundred and forty two thousand pounds, and that and that's always what I say to, what I say to people when they when they say how much is that knife? You know, they don't realize yeah. how much work goes into each blade. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I think last year I definitely wasn't earning what the bees are earning. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And you know, for me, uh, the automation is a big part of that. You know, I wanted to be able to keep the price of my knives the same, um, but obviously, spending fourteen hours a knife doing everything by hand makes that completely unfeasible. So, being able to roll in automation as part of that um, lets me keep the pricing where it is. Yeah. Uh, even though I'm, you know, still a small one-man shop. Um, so yeah, like there is definitely a lot of work that goes into it. And I guess with me, I'm investing more in processes and machinery and stuff as opposed to, um, spending more and more time by hand on each one. So it's kind of a trade off. You have to find a, a happy zone in there. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with all those processes, is, is there one that you dread when it comes to making the knife? Is there that one process where you think oh, sandblasting? Really? <laughs> Oh yeah. It's honestly like the, I forget, I, I can't remember whether it was the last batch or the batch before, but I had to sandblast like a hundred knives. Oh, and so basically it was like four days standing in front of a box with my arms stuck in this box. You can't really move uh, cause you're, you have to be in one spot. And I think by the end of the fourth day, I couldn't really feel my feet anymore. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. Like definitely sandblasting out of all of them. Yeah, well, I, I hate that final etch of the sort of the maker's mark for me. I, I know you engrave yours mm. with your CNC, but um, I still use a really cheapo sort of electromatic device. Um, so I'm looking at alternatives, but looking at those sort of laser markers, which are drool over, being able to do some custom designs on blades and so on. But man, so expensive. Yeah, I feel you on that. Yeah, I get what you mean about the etching too, because it's like the last thing that you're doing to the knife. So it could be finished, but then you put the etch in slightly the wrong spot and you've just made a piece of scrap. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I feel you on that, Craig. I've done that a few times. Mate. <laughs> I've um, been like hand finishing a handle and then scratched the blade. Yeah. With the sandpaper errantly by hand. And you're just like, Oh no, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It, it, yeah. It can spoil your day. <laughs> yeah. So, when that happens, I tend to like, if it's late at night or whatever, I tend to kind of look around for a second and then be like, all right, I'm going home. <laughs> that's, that's a sign before your hand finishing i i see that you you be able to clean up on a standard sort of two by 72 grinder so for, yep. for that that kind of precision that you really adhere to are you using a jig 
For the grinder? Yeah, I am actually. Yeah, I mean, I've just ordered one myself. Uh, um, I've never used one, just ordered one, but I can't wait to try it out. It literally arrived uh, yesterday, so I'm, I'm looking forward to trying that out. Which one did you order? Was it like a bubble jig or was it a... It was actually from somebody on Instagram, um, this guy who hand makes them. Um, I'm trying to think of the name, Basher Dan or something like that. Basher Dan Knives and Grinders, I think. I think that's who he is on Instagram anyway. I'd be curious, actually. There's um, someone on Instagram that's been selling ones that are kind of based on my design, I think. I don't know if you've seen the design for my, my I have, grinding. yes, yeah. These, these yeah. are similar, but not, but not quite the same, yeah. Right. Yeah, and that grinding jig was interesting, actually, because people always ask me if I have plans for it, and it was something that I kind of made up over a couple of days on a weekend, like several years ago, and I still haven't uh, actually made plans for it. I need to do that at some point. I'd like to do a production run of them, actually. That would be cool. That would be really cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, with the CNC mill, doing something like that jig is is uh, relatively quick and easy, you know. So uh, it would be fun to just uh, make a bunch of them, sell them at cost, and and uh, get them out into the world. Yes, that uh, would be fun. Yeah, but in terms of the seven, the two by seventy two, and using a, a grinder and stuff, um, I actually don't do much of that anymore, Craig. Um, that was an old version of my process. Um, and I've been working really, really hard to try and get most of the beveling done on the CNC uh, to the point where I can basically go straight to hand finishing. Oh, right. Okay. Nice. nice. Yeah. And for me, that's uh, a huge win because, um, you know, the difference between an edge that's like 12 thou thick versus 16 thou um, is, is pretty huge in terms of like toughness and reliability. Um, and so I aim for my edges to be between 14 and 16 thou thick at the edge before sharpening. Yeah. Um, and doing that consistently by hand over the course of like dozens of knives is nearly impossible. Um, so I've been trying to shoot to, to get it done on the CNC and it's working very well these days, actually. Cool, cool. cool. So what about heat treatment? Do you do that yourself in small batches in-house or is that sent off? How, how does that normally work? So I used to do it in-house, and then I realized that uh, people other than myself could do a much better job of it. Because um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever been in a commercial heat treat place, but they are amazing. They are really fun places. Um, you know, they've got these giant million-dollar vacuum furnaces and stuff. Um, so basically, I've, I've kind of formed a close relationship with a heat treatment shop in uh, Toronto here called Atlantic Heat Treat. Um, and they run an entire vacuum furnace for me each time with just my knives in it and do everything to, to my spec. They actually don't use their standard heat treat at all. They use my, my heat treat recipe. Right. Uh, and the guys there are fantastic. And they do such a better job than my little even heat could. Yes, um, yeah. You know, like I, I can heat treat a couple of knives in my shop, no problems. I'll get fantastic results. But doing 100 um, – I'll, you know, I'll have, if I was to do that in my shop, I would have like 10% of them warped. Uh, whereas these guys can do like, you know, everything perfect. Yeah. And I suppose it's about the repeatability, isn't there? Which is, you know, which is everything for you when you've got, when you've got that one knife that needs to be the same each time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I guess I, these days I come from a very different, um, I come at knife making a very different way to most knife makers. It's kind of, it's weird. I, you know, when people ask like, Oh, are you a custom knife maker or you whatever? I, I don't really have a good answer for it because you know, I'm basically, I'm trying to use like high end, uh, production techniques, you know, things like, so some of the stuff I'm doing now is only really used in like the mold making industry and the aerospace industry. Um, but I'm trying to apply that to, you know, small quantities of a knife and a product that I really care about. 
Um, so it's, it's, that's very different from hand making stuff. And it means that, uh, I come at a lot of things very differently. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're sold out of all your models at the moment. Um, I can see from the website. So what, what sort of numbers are you able to sort of manufacture on a weekly basis? Does that, does that flux and change? Is, is it, did you... uh, I actually, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think last year I did around 200 knives. Right. Um, okay. I know what that works out to be on a, a weekly basis. Um, but it will, it kind of goes up and down because, you know, if I have a problem with the CNC or I have, um, some issue with the process that I want to resolve, then that could, uh, hang me up. Mm. Um, you know, I, so I actually had a bit of an interesting experience last year where, uh, have you ever had glandular fever? I haven't. Thankfully not. Thankfully not. Is yeah. that the kissing disease? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they call it. Yeah. Yes, yeah. In, in North America, they call it mono, which is a lot less, uh, it sounds like a lot less fun. Um, so I'd never had that either. And, uh, last year I got that and that was amazing. I don't, sorry, as an adult, as a kid, it doesn't really put you down at all, but as an adult, it's like months of, of awfulness. Right, it was yeah. uh, pretty rough. And so, you know, that obviously put a dent in my production for, for months at an, at an end, you know? Mm -hmm. So it really does vary, unfortunately, cause I'm just one guy. If, if I had like a bunch of people in a shop, then I'm sure it would be different, but um, you know, being one guy, things go up and down. It's all reliant on you. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so you're, you're a full-time knife maker now, and you have been for a couple of years now. Um, so many of us and myself included are, are still working towards that goal. So any advice for anybody who's struggling with taking that big leap? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say a really, this is, this is a hard one to do, but I think it's really important. Uh, and that is avoid doing pre-orders. Really? Right. Um, because pre-orders are kind of like credit cards. You know, you, you get all of the, the fun of buying stuff up front and then you get a penny <laughs> for it later on. Um, you know, like uh, I've been very fortunate in my customers have supported me through pre-orders. Um, but I think that in the long term, it's something that I really, really want to get away from because uh, as I said, you know, it front loads the, the satisfaction of the sale and then mm. it puts the, all of the hard work behind that as opposed to the other way around. Um, and I, it can be quite demotivating to, to have to deal with that cycle. So uh, that's actually something that I'm looking to stop doing by the end of this year. No really? more, right. no more pre-orders basically. I'll be doing knives up front instead. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose with that sort of manufacturing way of, of making knives, it, that may be, yeah, I, I suppose that suits a lot better then, doesn't it, you know? Yeah, you know, and I, you could do it um, even if you were making knives by hand. It's It just depends on what your customers want and what, want and what you want to do, I guess. Hmm. Uh, yeah, like I'm trying to think of what else I would what else I would say in terms of going full-time. Um, I actually asked Murray Carter that, that uh, same question hmm. when I was just about to go full-time, and he said – focus on the finished result. And I thought that was really interesting because, um, you know, obviously he's been hugely successful and he makes his knives in a very labor intensive way. So it must be very hard. I'm sure some days to, to keep his eyes on the prize, you know, to, to keep, to keep going forward. And, you know, that, that for me has, that piece of advice has been very helpful to, you know, whenever you're feeling like, Oh God, this is all too much, you know, just to, to, take a step aside and just pick up one of your own knives and look at it and be like, I made this 
and this is why I'm doing, you know, this is why I'm doing it, all this work. Yes, um, yeah. Well, I've got 50 pre-orders that I now eat. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, you know, and as I said, like pre-orders are the thing that let me um, get off the ground, you know, because when I, when I went full-time, um, basically I'd been planning to do it for a while, and then um, it just so happened that things kind of came to a head at the company that I was working at. Um, it was the right time for me to leave. So I left, but that meant that I had two paychecks and a, and a maxed out credit card when I started the, the knife making business. You know? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, pre-orders were really the only thing that allowed it to actually happen. Um, and it's been an amazing process to go through that. It's been, it's been, uh, completely wonderful. My customers are amazing. Um, you know, so I, I don't regret it at all, but I, I do think that in the long term, pre-orders are not the, the thing for me, at least. Right. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, so I, lo- I love one of the strap lines on your website where it says, uh, combining the best aspects of old school craftsmanship and modern CNC technology. So mm-hmm. do you think the availability of CNC machines and the price is becoming lower by the day, um, that this will sort of revolutionize how the hobbyist makes physical objects? Absolutely. I hope so. I, I really do. Um, you know, I, I think that CNC is empowering in a lot of ways. And one of the big ways that is what I said before, that if you have a good CNC machine, then there's a lot of other machines that you don't need. Hmm. Um, and so that means that you can have a, a very capable workshop in a much smaller amount of space. And given that most of us live in the city these days, um, that's that's a very powerful thing because most people don't have sheds and workshops and stuff now. But if they could have a CNC machine that they put in their spare room or, you know, I, I actually used to have my CNC in my bedroom. Um, <laughs> not, not a smaller one, not the one I've got now. You weirdo. Um, yeah, right. Um, my priorities, my bed was in the living room and my CNC was in the bedroom. Um, yeah, I think it's going to make a huge difference. Um, I think that... I think that a lot of people don't realize how much work still goes into something, even with the help of CNC. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that that's going to be a bit of an eye opener for a lot of people that buy a little machine and then hope that it's going to do everything for them. But once they get past that and they, you know, start realizing the capabilities of that little machine, I think it's, it's amazing. You know, micro scale manufacturing is the future, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, even down to little things such as 3d printers, you know, it's just mm-hmm. so, so cheap. And I'll use a 3D printer to uh, prototype shapes of knives, shapes of blades, that kind of thing. Um, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so I just think, yeah, it's we're, we're on the verge of a revolution for the homemaker. I, I really do think that. Yeah, and that's been happening over the last few years. I've seen that a lot on YouTube, and it's, it's amazing, you know. I think um, one of the reasons that I started my channel was that I think that people don't um, don't understand and don't – empathize with how things are made these days, you know, cause it all happens overseas and big factories and people just assume that they can't make stuff for themselves anymore. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, my part of the reason why I made my channel was to, to let people know that, you know, you can do this stuff at home with minimal tools. Um, and you know, I, I've demonstrated that via files and hacksaws and stuff, but in the future it might be like, Oh, that thousand dollar CNC machine that you've got in your basement can totally make knives, you know? I think we're not too far away from being able to just download plans for products and just make them at home as opposed to going out to, to buy these products, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge science fiction fan and that is definitely a theme throughout a lot of science fiction. The idea of having like a fabricator in your house that makes mm. stuff. Yes. Yeah. So, so what's next for your resolute knife? Is there any major design tweaks or finishes, changes to finishes that are in the works? Good question, Craig. Um, you know, I, I so I've been working on the Mark IV for about a year, um, and I've been playing around with with um, you know small design tweaks and that kind of stuff. But I think the biggest change that's going to happen is actually a move to stainless steel. Um, that's been something I've been planning for a while. I've just been trying to find the right stainless. Um, and it's still an ongoing question. I'm basically going to do another round of testing on my YouTube channel, um, showing, you know, a couple of different options versus a two, and then, uh, the winner takes all. Right. Okay, cool. Cool. So it's literally, it's going to be completely down to performance. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much how I've always done all of my selections. Um, and you know, I want to keep, keep doing that. Um, the, the downside is, you know, that unfortunately, like a modern uh, powder metallurgy stainless steel is a fair bit more expensive than A2. Yeah. Um, so it may come along with a, a price bump to account for that, but we'll, we'll have to see. Yes, yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm, I'm going to wrap up with the same final question that I've asked all my yes. guests. Um, so that, again, I, I've talked about this before. There's, there's many resources out there for the knife maker, forums, YouTube channels, Instagram, etc. So where do you find your inspiration? Where does Aaron Goff find his own inspiration? Uh, good question. You know, like seeing, seeing the work of other makers was a huge thing when I was getting started. And uh, Blade Forums was, was fantastic for that. Um, and uh, John Grimsmo on YouTube actually was a huge inspiration for me initially doing doing work with CNC and so on. Yeah, and these days it's kind of it's turned over to Instagram. I, I love <laughs> Instagram; it's awesome. Um, I think that getting to to see people's work in progress and uh, you know getting to see their finished work is hugely inspirational. And there's tons of great night makers on there. Um, and so I, you know, I, Jeff, I know that Jeff Fetter was the the guy that. Uh, you know, yelled at you and told me to get you on my. <laughs> he did. He did. <laughs> I'm going to try and get you to get someone else on your show. Good. Good. That's great. It's like an interview chain. This. I love this. Everybody's exactly. telling the yeah. next desk they need to get on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think you should talk to Nathan Carruthers. Right. Do you know Nathan? Is he? Is he got the anchor? Is his sort of maker's mark? Oh, uh, I can't remember. No, I think it's his. His maker's mark is Carruthers. Is his last name? Right. Right. And He's a really interesting guy. So he's a, a machinist by trade um, and runs a, a CNC machine shop and then makes knives on the side in his own shop. Oh. And he makes knives in a way that's completely different to any other knife maker that I've ever seen. Um, they're really, it's really fascinating. And I think he's a, a really fantastic knife maker. So if you can get him on, that would be amazing. I shall certainly try. And, and what kind of knives is that he makes? Is that they sort of hunting knives? Are they kitchen knives? What kind? Mainly hunting knives. So it's like utility, little uh, utility knives up to kind of um, like camp knives and survival knives and stuff. And you know, as I said, just the way that he makes them is fascinating. He makes these these jigs and stuff for uh, sorry, these fixtures for his CNC machine that are uh, totally different to anything I would come up with. And the, his knives are amazing. They're really nice. Cool, cool. Okay, well, I should, I should be making that email later today. <laughs> Sounds good. So if people want to know more about yourself, where can they find you online? Uh, my Instagram or my uh, my webpage, so golfcustom.com, um, and then my Instagram name is aaron.golf, 
Um, and the other one is too, is, is YouTube. You know, I, so I have my golf custom channel and I pride myself on answering every single comment that anyone makes anywhere. So if, if they have questions about knife making or about my knives, I'm always happy to answer. Right. Except for the trolls, eh? <laughs> oh, I answer them too. It's, just not, <laughs> it's not always wise to do so. All right. Well, I think that's a really good, a good place to wrap up. But again, thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks very much for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.